This is episode 160 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Winter Youth 2008 Epiphany Kingdom with Chris C. This is session two. That was a dramatic pause so we could build up a little bit. I decided I'm going to do my power team routine tonight. You guys seen the power team before? I promised I'd stop making fun of them. There's a lawsuit pending, so... Um, so I'm actually, uh, if you could record, if anybody's recording, if you could take that part about the power team out so that their legal team doesn't get a hold of it again, that'd be great. I'm, uh, I'm just going to open the scriptures with us tonight. And first, let me tell you, just in interacting with many of you, um, you are, are bright, uh, intelligent, uh, young people. I'm going to treat you as such as young adults that I can tell. Uh, have the capacity to really dive into some of this with us. If there's any of you guys in the back, would you guys mean, mind bringing, would you mind grabbing me a bottle of water? We're going to um, open up in, in Luke 5, and I want to share with you probably the most significant, significant conundrum, that's big words to throw together, um, that I've been walking through over the last year. I talked with you a little bit when I was briefly with you last year about this, this, um, this struggle that I find that, thank you, brother. That for me, especially around Christmas time, this has been true, that as we buy more and more, I, I became increasingly convicted by this reality that my abundance and whether or not I share it truly means the difference between life and death um, for brothers and sisters across the globe. That the reality that in the United States last year, we spent $18 billion on makeup, right? $17 billion on perfume. And they say $10 billion would solve the water crisis. That with $10 billion devoted properly, we would go from a place where one child is dying every 15 seconds to a place that's symbolic of the kingdom of God, where everyone has enough. Right? When, you, when you journey with uh, friends in places in Africa, uh, where, and even places that we've been in Latin America, where the for, uh, clean water is just a foreign concept, Sometimes they'll ask, is, is, for real, you guys, you, f- you flush your toilets with clean water, like water that we could drink, and you flush your toilets with it? For them, it just seems like, you are so wasteful. <laughs> They're not trying to make us feel guilty, but they are. Like, do you realize what you're flushing your toilets with? I, it, we were in a village last year in Liberia, and we, um, this is a village that a lot of people had come and promised clean water and no one had managed to deliver. So as we got there, the people were kind of just angry at us, it felt like, even right from there. And we asked them to show us where was it that you gathered your water, and they brought us to this little hole, this little swamp. And one of the, the assistant chiefs in the village, he looks at me and he says, Why not? and it was just covered with filth, and there's a level of scum across the top of it, right, where they would gather water. Mothers were there gathering water for their kids. And he said to me, why don't you take a drink? And I turn and look, uh, I'm trying to think of excuses, like, I'm not thirsty. Um, I said, I, I can't do it. I mean, I got four kids at home. I knew what would happen if I'm drinking that water. And um, as we left, the, one of the, the folks let us know, well, part of the reason he's upset is because his son died three days before. That his son contracted cholera from that hole that you're standing over. So it's almost like that hole was like the gun, you know, that shot his kid. So I told the 
Father, I said before, I, I, I want to come back and, and share a cup of tea or something with you, but, um, but it's going to be when we complete a well. And you try not to make promises when you're in Africa, but in this place, I said, I don't care what it takes. We're going to get clean water, right? 60 days after Christmas last year, uh, a new deep water well was completed in that village, right? And now as, uh, as people gather there, there's a new sense of it's the kingdom of God is reigning in that place, right? I don't know because you don't have a specific of a need, Right? Um, what it will take for you to see and declare and have a vision of the kingdom of God, but I'm praying over these couple of days that you'll have it, right? That, that we begin to realize part of our role is sharing from our abundance. We're the people wasting money on makeup. It's, I love to talk about makeup because I don't wear it, right? So I don't, you don't hear me talking about wasted money on baseball games. I don't do that. I think that's money God has... Still figuring it out, but I'm, I'm working on it, okay? So, the, but the, the truth is, we, we all have our things, right? And what we are praying over these few days is that God would soften our hearts to be a part of something beautiful. And I was trying to explain this. I told you a little bit this last year. My, my friend Gideon was helping me understand it better. I was on a plane with him and um, flying to speak at a, at a conference about this. And he said, Chris, you need, the way you need to think about it is like this. And he said, I've got four kids. I've got a picture of them to... Um, to show you, I think it's back there. You have those, there's like, it's like the Wizard of Oz. There's like people behind the curtain that take your text messages and they do what I say. It's really creepy. Those are my four kids. Aren't they cute? They're beautiful. And, um, and he, he knows my kids, my friend Gideon. And he said, Chris, think about it this way. You know, you're a father. And he, he said, um, what if your son Solomon, he's a trip. You can keep him up there. You don't have no. Pull him back up. Come on now. He said, "What? What if your son Solomon? He um, he just he ends up living the American dream. You know, he's probably going to be a baseball player. He's the one with the big idea about all the bulls and the bull riding all at the same time. So he's obviously smart too. But so he signs just a big baseball contract, right? And um, and in fact, he." He lavishes you with really expensive gifts at Christmas and at your birthday. He's got a house with a, uh, a big garage with a bunch of cars in it, and you have your own key to every car. You can come drive anyone anytime. He's just he's living the good life, right? But he said, imagine in the midst of all of those blessings that your son Solomon's walking through, that your daughter Hannah, right? She's my oldest. Imagine that she and her kids, your grandkids, and ultimately your great-grandkids, they live in an area where they don't have access to clean water. In fact, they draw their water from the same river where they bathe. Their waste is washed into this river. And on a regular basis, your grandchildren will drink from this stream. They'll contract cholera, get diarrhea, and in a short period of time, they'll die. And he said, imagine your, your daughter, Trinity, that she lives in an area where she and her children, your grandchildren and ultimately your great-grandchildren, they pray every day that they will have a meal to eat that day. That if they were to a- able to eat rice and beans, that would be a, a beautiful and significant and celebratory day. And even your youngest son, Christian, it's hard for me to imagine him having kids, he's so little, but 
his kids, they live in an area where there is no infrastructure. They have no medical care. There are no schools. Um, They will never learn to read or to write. Their world will always be very small. And Gideon was setting me up. He asked me the hardest question I've ever been asked. He said, Chris, how would you feel about your son Solomon? It was hard to even think about because my kid hadn't done anything. (laughs) It's just a hypothetical story. And I started feeling just anger towards my own kid. Just thinking, surely he wouldn't do that. There is no way that this son of mine that I've been training to share would look the other way while his nieces and nephews suffered and died needlessly. There's no way. But you get what Gideon was saying. We're all God's children. As we're going to wrestle with over the course of these few days, we have one father. We've been blessed with earthly fathers. Sometimes um, they show their imperfection and their humanity quite clearly. But we have a heavenly father that is perfect and loving. And he must look down on us as we hoard from our abundance. And you can only imagine what God must feel. I I was struggling deeply with this, and there's a part of me, because we don't have many models for how to deal with these problems in the world. Well, one of the only ones is is Mother Teresa. And I was making a trip uh, this last year. You can can keep the slides up, you guys. There you go. um, I I knew... um, when Mother Teresa died, there was this deep sadness that I, this is a woman that I would have liked to have met. And for many of us, it's the only model we have is somebody that just abandons it all and says, I'm going to love and to care for the poor. And I was making a trip to Calcutta. Our church sponsors a wonderful couple in our community that's living in Calcutta and working to end human trafficking and slavery. Uh, they were recently a part of a bust uh, of a brothel where uh, there were 16 young girls being held captive in this place, right? It's, uh, and as these girls are released, and we feel this part of it. It's nothing more. That's the kingdom of God playing out. It's beautiful. Better than any uh, thrill you can get from going to buy a video game or um, us eating even a good meal. And I thought for sure if I could go to Calcutta, I could walk where Mother Teresa walked and meet with the sisters there and see how they served the poor that I would be really inspired. So I gathered a few biographies about Mother Teresa, and there was this new one that had come out that was a compilation of some of her letters. And I was um, really alarmed by what I read. Basically, that this woman who loved the poor so much that over the last 50 years, she had truly lost all sense of joy. She talks about not remembering when she last laughed, right? that even in the Eucharist, she didn't find joy anymore. She says at one point, this, you can click to the next slide, this, um, well, somehow I got messed up. I, I'm, I'm in a world that is called the kingdom of God. It's uh, Apple, and um, they live in a world uh, called the evil empire, called um, Windows. And um, when you try to take things out of God's kingdom and put it into this other kingdom, they don't look right any longer. So... Um, so something happened here, but you'll, you'll get the gist of it. But what she says to her spiritual mentor, Michael Van, a lot of you guys use Windows apparently, huh? So, all right, just a few. Anybody? Who, okay, never mind. I can't see you anyway. I have no clue. You guys awake out there? Okay, good. It, Mother Teresa says this, and it, it, um, 
it turned my world upside down. This woman that I thought, surely she must find this tremendous joy and satisfaction in what she does and how she cares for the poor, how she loves the sick and the dying. And she says to Michael Vanderpeet, one of her spiritual mentors, Jesus has a very special love for you. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and I do not see. I listen and I do not hear. And I looked at the life of Mother Teresa and thought, I want to care for the poor, but I don't want to end up this person that doesn't know the joy of God, that doesn't enjoy the people that I'm with, that can't remember the last time that I laughed. And I wanted to um, walk you through a passage together that I sat and I read next to the little, I don't know what you call it, it's the room that Mother Teresa lived in all of her life, a cot and a bed and a pencil, very simple life that she lived for the poor. And I'm very slow to criticize Mother Teresa because she was willing to go a mile where we were unwilling to go an inch. And what I believe is that if large numbers of us, if young people like you said, I'm willing to move 10 or 15 feet that we would see poverty come to an end in our lifetime, that the kingdom of God, the portraits of it, would be all around us. We'd have many things to point to. And so I believe that if I never spoke on this again, if, I, if we talk about it here, and you guys took it seriously, that the world could be a different place. And as I sat in that place and thought, I, I don't want it, for one, Calcutta, Houston is a little bit warm, if you've ever been to Houston. It was like 70 when I left. Um, and in the summer, it gets hot, right? So Calcutta makes it feel like the North Pole. It is so hot. And Mother Teresa slept in this little room without air conditioning. And I thought, oh, God, could we buy her an air conditioner? Is there some? I wanted to find a little store around there. And uh, obviously, it wasn't what they, um, they do. And I sat there going, what, what is it? How, what am I called to do? And I opened uh, the scriptures in Luke chapter 5. I think I've got them on the screen here to read uh, with me. Luke chapter 5, verse 30. It tells us the Pharisees and their associates. One of the things you'll see is we're, um, that's Matthew. That's a good passage too. Um, Yeah, I think it goes back a little bit. Is that the first slide you got? Windows really messes that up, doesn't it? We've got to get Steve Jobs down here to fix some of this stuff. Um, you can follow along with me, but in, in Luke chapter 5, this is what's going on. Part of the way that it's laid out in the voices just as the screenplay, you see the dialogue play out. You can go back because that's not the slide. You've you got to go back at least one. And what we see, that's good too. Wow. Um, the, this is what's happening, so just paint the picture here with me. The Pharisees and their associates, the religious scholars, they got the attention of some of Jesus' disciples. And the Pharisees began to call out to him in low voices. That's how they talked, because they were kind of scoundrels. And um, they asked this question. They go, what's wrong with you, to Jesus and his followers? Why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and other immoral people? Jesus got asked this question a lot. This is a good one just to throw at your pastor every now and then, right? Just your youth pastor while you're here. Ask him, when's the last time you were with really creepy people? I mean, really creepy. Not just a little creepy. Like really creepy, right? This is, this is what Je- Jesus was known for being around. And again, being holy. Jesus was never accused in his day of, of sin. But he was always around sinners. Right? I was... At, um, I have these really sacred places for me in Houston. 
um, my church and my favorite Mexican food restaurant and, and uh, Minute Maid Park, they would call it the juice box, where I watch my Astros lose. And, um, and when I gather in that place, I make friends because I love baseball a lot. And so we just become instant friends. And I make friends with this guy and we start talking baseball. And we've been talking for like five minutes and how much we love baseball. And he said, hey, I'm going outside to smoke weed. You want to come smoke weed with me? And this is where it's always awkward, like, uh, I'm Pastor Chris. Um, what exactly do you, how do you make this, you know, this transition here? And uh, so I had to stop and tell him, thank you so much for asking. Like, I'm a pastor, and I need to be asked that on a regular basis, right? This is part of what I should be asked. When you're in the faith, um, you should be in the place where, um, now again, and then I remind him, like, well, and you want to share, and sharing's really good. That's Sharing, Jesus likes sharing a lot, but not so much smoking weed. So it was this transition to talk about, about Jesus, right? Part of, part of our journey means what, what does it look like to live amongst people that are deeply broken, that are deeply flawed, and remain uniquely Christian in that place? If you read the Gospels, again, I highly recommend them. If you read them, you're going to find that it's not Christian to be pulled away from the rest of the world. For your youth group to be a world unto itself. You are called to be salt and to be light. And if you're truly walking with God, and again, you don't do that by yourself, you do that in community, then you live in places with deeply broken people. And Jesus articulates something here that you really need to hear. He said, why are you with these people, these sinful people, these tax collectors and immoral people? And Jesus says, healthy people don't need a doctor but sick people do. I haven't come for the pure and the upstanding. I've come to call notorious sinners to rethink their lives and turn to God. If you could have a mission statement while you're here, Luke chapter 5, verse 31. I haven't come for the pure and the upstanding. I've come to call notorious sinners to rethink their lives and turn to God. If you could be a part of that mission in the world, it's a beautiful mission. And the Pharisees say, well, okay, now they begin to move for another angle to try to attack him. And say, well, then explain to us this, why you and your disciples are so commonly found um, partying like this, when our disciples and even the disciples of John are known for fasting rather than feasting. I think this is the slide where you guys ended up. You just missed one there. For fasting rather than feasting and for saying prayers rather than drinking wine. And Jesus goes on to say, imagine there's, uh, there's a big wedding he said, you wouldn't end the party before the bridegroom leaves, right? And this tension in Luke 5 is where I want to uh, focus, and then we're going to uh, celebrate part of the Christmas story. But this tension between feasting and fasting, this is part of what you're going to do tomorrow. So I want to set it up for you a little bit. That My belief is that most of us live our lives doing neither. We neither feast nor fast. We exist. You eat food so that you function, you sleep, you go through your day, you do what you do. And I looked at Mother Teresa who had devoted her life to fasting. And what I wish that I could say to her was, dear sister, could you, could you take a day and eat really good food with people that you love, that love God, and laugh really well? And tell some stories and laugh some more and eat some more really good food. Can you tell I like food a lot? Um, this, 
what, what would your life have been like if, if once a week, dear sister, you had gathered with people that love you and you ate a great feast and you told stories of God's goodness and grace being played out in people's life? What if you did that? Can you imagine how those letters that she wrote might have read differently? And, and again, I say that to you. Part of what I'd like to challenge you to over the next 30 days as you go back with your youth groups, once a week to do these two things to take a, a day in the week, whenever it is that you gather, even if it's a small meal, even if it's coffee and a bagel, whatever it is, that you have a feasting time, that you truly sit and you feast and you laugh and you celebrate and you enjoy yourself and you do it well. And, I, and I'd also like you to take a day that you fast. Now, for some of you, that doesn't mean, right, because of my incredible physique, I have to eat a little bit during the day. That's a joke. Um, <laughs> Right, but whatever, for me, what I've tried to do recently is to try to eat what most of the world would be blessed to eat, rice and beans. If you took a day every week over the next month, this is what I'd like you to do. You just take a day and you eat just rice and beans for each meal. You wake up for breakfast, rice and beans. Right, and, you, and you spend a day and you contemplate where most of the world is in relation to food and clean water and basic necessities. You have a day that you're truly fast, that you pray for our brothers and sisters, you pray that justice would reign, that the kingdom of God would come, that no other father would stand next to a hole with someone days after his child had died, that that would come to an end, that you'd take one day a week. I still, I'm not quite spiritual enough. I still put on a lot of Tabasco, so... I'm trying to get more speed. Yeah, anybody else likes the Tabasco, huh? So I just throw a lot of that on. But, but then I have a day to really say, this is, um, God longs, God loves these children. There's no doubt about it. And I need a day to abstain to realize that the world's not about me. But I also need a day, and tomorrow's gonna be your day, um, this week while you're here, and you're going to feast. In fact, you're, you've been written a little bit of a liturgy, some prayers that you can pray together, some things that you can talk about. And so when you go out, and some of you guys are going to some really good restaurants. I want to know who's going to the Mongolian barbecue place because I'm going with you guys. But that's you guys? Good. Um, so I'm going to come, and we're, we're just we're going to feast. We're going to eat good food. We're going to laugh. We're going to tell good stories, and we're going to pray. And I'll tell you, you never pray as good as when you eat good food. You just, really good prayers. And we live into this tension of a feasting and a fasting people. And I believe that if we could, could enter into that world on a regular basis, these would be the rhythms of the kingdom. The rhythms of the kingdom are not life is always about me. It's, and again, it, Feasting wouldn't be feasting if you did it every day, right? So if you eat filet mignon every day, it starts to taste like hamburger, you know? Yeah, which I'm, I'd try as an experiment, maybe, just to see. But So I've been told, right? So, but it's, at the point of having special foods and a special time is that it's special, it's set apart. But we also need these times to say, the world is not about me. I'm not at the center of the universe. And for some of you, it's, it'll be as simple as things uh, like giving up caffeine and, and just realizing that so much of our lives uh, is dictated on what we want and when we want it and our urges and our impulses. And beautiful and remarkable things happen. There is one that came to free us from all of this. He's a king, and I want to read to you in Matthew chapter 2. We've been in this beautiful and remarkable Christmas season. 
And so as we, um, we read, I want to give you a little bit of a lens. I do this a lot when I'm teaching, but I rarely um, kind of let people into my world of what I'm seeing. So I, we're just going to um, walk through a part of the Christmas story as told in the Gospel of Matthew. And what I'd, I'd like for you to do is be able to experience what I think. When I, when I read these scriptures, and part of the reason in this Bible translation that I lead, we, we lay this out as a screenplay is because I love to see the way um, that these characters develop. Um, and so I wanted you to be able to see who I might, if I was going to make a movie out of Matthew 2, which I would love to do, um, who I would cast in these. So I got a few pictures of them so you could, uh, could see clearly. You guys back, there's my people. Uh, Mary is Salma Hayek in my movie. So um, if I'm casting this story, it doesn't help. She's beautiful and sweet, good actress, and I found a picture of her with a baby, which is... Uh, is really helpful. Joseph, as we're going through this story, just and what I want you to do is be able to picture John Cusack. He'd be a great Joseph. I, I, as we read, this is what I'd like for your imagination to allow you to see some faces and some people acting. There's, um, there's this problem. I get sent a lot of Christian movies. I helped found a, a film festival years ago, and then people have sent me a lot of movies. And these Christian movies, I, I have generally one response. They'll ask me, like, what what did you think about the movie and what could have made it better? And I always have one response. What if you actually hired actors to be in the movie, like people that could act? That'd be not just the guy from Growing Pains. Like, what if you could find somebody else? And sorry if you love him, but brother can't act. Um, Do you remember the first time you saw really good acting for me? It was in like 1984 or something, and Michael Caine was in a movie, and you just went, wow, that's acting. Like, that's what it's about. And these Christmas narratives, we made these into kind of silly people in robes that were very milquetoast. This is an adventure. It's a romance. It is all of the above, and it needs chops like John Cusack. So the wise men, I've reached into history a little bit. We've got Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, and Charlton Heston. So... um, (laughs) Again, they're not necessarily three wise men, but we're going to hang with the myth and roll with it a little bit. So uh, the key to this thing and the main person I've attached to this uh, project is my Herod. Um, If he can't do it, I'm not making the movie. So it's the right choice, right? Can't you just hear, Herod? You can't handle the truth. Just perfect. So... Um, so he, he's, he's rolling with Herod. Uh, innkeeper, you guys may not know this guy very well, um, but he's got experience uh, running an inn. I really feel like he could pull it off. And then uh, there are going to be many shepherds, but the lead shepherd that gets all the, uh, the speaking roles, no doubt about it. So um, a- as we read the story, I'd like for you to picture my marvelous cast living out this story. Matthew tells it from a very historical perspective, a very persuasive perspective to let you know that this wasn't just anyone being born. He's gone through in Matthew 1 a long lineage uh, that lets us know exactly where Jesus has come from, from the line of David, just as predicted. And it tells us that Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. As uh, Sean let you know, part of what this meant to people in the current day meant think of the lowliest place and the most backwoods bar in the neighborhood. And that's where Jesus was born. As we talk with our kids, we think, who would put their baby in their dog's food dish, right? Like you'd call CPS or something, right? Who, you don't, I don't know anyone poor enough, but they put their baby in an animal feeding dish. But this is where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem. 
In the province of Judea at the time King Herod reigned. And not long after Jesus was born, magi, wise men, or seers from the east, these, these men that looked to the stars to find answers, they didn't have scriptures, they didn't have these traditions, they just knew that God was speaking in creation, and they were looking, and they were listening, and in the stars it was revealed to them that a Savior was born. So they set off to find the baby Savior, and making their way from the east to Jerusalem, these wise men made inquiries. Where is this newborn who, the king, uh, who is the king of the Jews? When we were far away in the east, we saw his star and we followed its glisten and gleam all the way to worship him. Right? Part of what you need to know is that um, you can look to creation, you can look to the stars, you can look out. If you look out on the water, I think it will be revealed to you um, that God is real and he's true and he's active in the world. When I go to the ocean, even just looking out in the ocean, but then if you get a snorkel and you look under the ocean, you just think, there must be a God. This is so magnificent and beautiful, right? The stars were revealing that there was a God, in fact, that God was being birthed into the world, uh, but they didn't know where to go or what to do, so they began to ask questions, and King Herod began to hear rumors about the wise men's quest, and he and all the followers in Jerusalem were worried. So Herod called all the leading Jewish teachers and the chief priests and the head scribes, and he asked them where the Hebrew tradition claimed the long-awaited liberator would be born. And the scribes and the priests said, an ancient Hebrew prophet Micah said this, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are no poor relation. For from your people will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Right? In the same way for many of us, as we seek, and I pray you are seeking and you are asking questions along this path, creation will tell you a little bit about God, but ultimately to find true answers, we must open the scriptures. That God has revealed himself most clearly in the scriptures. And these wise men would still be walking around searching if it weren't for the recorded scriptures that pointed them to Bethlehem. And then Herod called the wise men to him, and he demanded to know the exact time the special star had appeared to them. And again, picture Jack Nicholas in this role. So he's tough, and he plays the good cop and the bad cop when he needs to. And then Herod sent them to Bethlehem. So go to Bethlehem and search high and low for this Savior child. And as soon as you know where he is, report it to me so that I may go and worship him. And the wise men left Herod's chambers, and they went on their way, and the star they had first seen in the east reappeared, a miracle that, of course, overjoyed and enraptured the wise men. The star led them to the house where Jesus lay. And as soon as the wise men arrived, they saw him with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and they worshiped him. And they unpacked their satchels and gave Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in this, right, they, they made three declarations in these gifts of who Jesus was. If you guys will hang with me right here, then we'll uh, close this up and land it. And then you can highly caffeinate yourself in the coffee shop afterwards, okay? By giving him gold, they were saying clearly that Jesus was a king, a, a gift befitting a king, right? And uh, they gave him frankincense, the gift that you would give to a priest, and myrrh, a gift that you would give that would be used to embalm corpses. They were already declaring that in Jesus' death, that salvation would come. And then just as Joseph did a few months before, the wise men had a dream warning them not to go back to Herod. And the wise men heeded the dream, ignoring Herod's instructions. They returned to their homes in the east by a different route. And after the wise men left, a messenger of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, and this is what I pray you follow Joseph in today. 
In the middle of the night, an angel speaks to Joseph and says, get up and take the child and his mother and head to Egypt and stay there until I tell you it's safe to leave. For Herod understands that Jesus threatens him and all he stands for. And he's planning to search for the child and kill him. But you will be safe in Egypt. Right now, part of what I love about this story, I love two things, especially about this part with Joseph. One is just he was doing what a father does. Right? When our, our church is in a pretty tough neighborhood in Houston, an inner city neighborhood. So when we were first starting the church, we actually had to live in the church building, which is a miracle my wife still likes me. So... Um, we lived in this really tough little part of it. And one night after um, we had, had gathered about 3 a.m., I hear a breaking glass and uh, go and find someone crawling in a window. And then I go to grab my kids, and somebody else was trying to crawl into my um, four-year-old's window. So I grabbed my four... At the time, I only had two kids, my four-year-old and, um, and a two-year-old. And I get them uh, put off in a, in a corner with my wife, and then I get a baseball bat, and that's all I had, my best weapon. And um, I went crazy. I, <laughs> I, I was very succinct in my um, message to them that they needed to leave very quickly and um, that I could do tremendous harm. And I just started breaking everything that would sound loud when I broke it, right? I just, walls, glass, you name it, and just let them know their skull would be next, you know? You get out of my house. I kicked into another mode, right, when you come in and you threaten my kids. And um, I, part of what I love is you see that instinct in Joseph. He just, the angel speaks, and Joseph gets up in the middle of the night, and he's not like, well, let's go back to sleep, and we'll leave in the morning. It's like, let's pack up now, and we are going. We are gone. And I also love the urgency of being obedient to God. Again, I believe, my belief, hands down, no question about it, it's for each one of you, young men and young women, that if you listen this weekend, that God will speak to you. I think some of you, God's already said, you know what, that thing he's talking about for a month, to feast and to fast, I'm supposed to do that. Some of you, it's already clear, like, yeah, I'm supposed to do that. Rice and beans or some smoothies or something like that. I'm supposed to really fast. I'm supposed to really feast. And I believe that over these couple of days, God's going to give you some clear information about what it means to be a leader on your campus and in your church. Peer pressure is just a reality at your place, and the reality is it can be used for good or bad. Everyone around you is looking for someone to follow, and if you will lead well, you will transform your campus. You'll transform the lives of the people around you. It took me until my senior year to figure that out. And then once I did, it was like a whole circle of people around me walked a different path because I was willing to lead them down that path. I, I believe that if you listen to God, he will speak to you to be able to make the same kind of changes. My hope is that like Joseph and like Mary, you'll get up and move without asking too many questions. So that's what I'm going to pray for you. God, I thank you for my young brothers and sisters. I believe that even tonight you're speaking to them. I know that their hearts are soft when they think uh, of our brothers and sisters across the globe that don't have clean water, that are struggling in the midst of poverty. And we realize uh, that any financial struggle that we have uh, seems meaningless in comparison to whether or not we'll buy some new clothes or buy a new iPod and for your other children that we know that you desperately love, 
They're wondering if they will have what they need to survive. Lord, would you call us out? Not just one person like Mother Teresa, but um, armies of young people that aren't activists for a cause. They, uh, they believe that you have called us to share abundantly. They choose to live a life devoted to you and in that reflect the kingdom of God and share from their abundance. God, would you lead a, a massive group of people that would begin among us, that, that would do that kind of work, that would live a life of feasting and fasting, that would follow the declaration of the Magi, that, that we have a king who has come to set all peoples free. And will we tell that story well? Will we live it well? We pray all of this in your name, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.